Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode on the Pleasure Talks podcast. Thank you so much for listening again. This podcast keeps getting juicier and juicier, and I can't wait for our next episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the intersections of race and kink. Come on, guys. It's going to be good. Let's get your bongs, your joints, your papers ready. It's going to be a fun one. Today, we have Luna Matatas, one of my favorite sex educators based in Toronto, Canada. She is amazing, and I'm so happy that she's here for us today. Just as a disclaimer, as we do for every episode, we love to talk about weed, cannabis, sex, sexuality, spirituality, and all we would like to say is that we are not here to treat, cure, or diagnose anyone. This platform is an amazing platform to help share women's stories on their experiences with cannabis and sexual health. So come here, enjoy the ride, and join us with Luna Matatas. How are you today, love? I'm so, so good. And I'm so excited to be on the podcast. I'm so excited too. Uh, We met at a really funny time. So I'm really excited to share with the community, the fun stories and all of the fun things that go into kink as well. Just a little background. I met Luna Matantas, honestly, what feels like a lifetime ago. (laughs) And we were in a sex club, honestly, one of my favorite sex clubs, Oasis Aqua Lounge here in Toronto, Canada on Mutual Street. It's such a safe space to really explore different sexual pleasures and partners and toys. And they always have educational classes. I was always teaching the cannabis and sex classes. Great one. Check it out. Um, This is not a plug. It's just, they're really amazing. And I met this amazing woman here. It was funny. We were both half naked, I believe. (laughs) so uh just a little yeah, bit you were more a- naked but i was <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was fun i loved always being naked at that place it was always a good time so as a new guest to our podcast we just want to know how did you really discover cannabis tell us yeah so it's funny the first time that I smoked pot, it was actually with an intention of getting rid of my cannabis virginity. And so I was like, I think I was 19. So I was older and I was about to go live in um, Amsterdam. I was about to do uh, a year abroad. And so I was like, I can't go to Amsterdam and not smoke pot here first. And so my friends got together and (laughs) helped me like smoke pot. And then of course I went to Amsterdam and had like the best year ever. Um, And then I came back home and I really didn't engage in in cannabis again until my 30s when my sexual exploration also started to get revved up. And so the two kind of paired together for me. I love that. Amsterdam was the one that got you to do it. (laughs) That's really beautiful. I love Amsterdam. The first time I went to Amsterdam, I love their, their coffee shops, they call them. And the coffee shops, they have all of these really cool menus. And on these menus, they really show you all of the different strains and the different experiences they give you. They tell you the ones that are really uplifting, the one are more sedative, more creative, more spiritual. It really is an intense menu. I was always really shocked by that. I was like, how do they know so much information? But if you go across the street, They have another coffee shop, but this one sells mushrooms and then they have a whole list of mushrooms and they tell you what mushroom does what. And it's such a beautiful experience, Amsterdam. There's no city like it. You just, you know, jump on a bike and you go around town. It's so small. It's such a beautiful community. And the people are just so lovely. Uh, Yeah, I love it. (laughs) 
So um, back to you, I was just wanting to know a little bit about you and, you know, what really made you become a sex educator? Like what had, was that entailing? Because, you know, I really want to know about that. <laughs> Yeah, I love that question. Uh, when I came back from Amsterdam, I finished my degree and I ended up getting um, a consulting job in Kenya. And so I lived in Kenya um, and taught HIV AIDS um, education, reduction and management from uh, probably about, about a year and a half. And so I would travel all over Eastern and Southern Africa. And no matter where I was teaching, I could talk to like blue in the face about condoms and people were still like, yeah, but how do I get her to do this? And how do I get him to do like people had this desire for pleasure knowledge. They were like, yeah, we understand condoms, whatever, but like, how do we do the thing? And um, I came back to Canada and I started working for Toronto public health and in frontline health promotion, um, still in sexuality, but still very much from a sexual um, kind of disease reduction management kind of position. And it was the same problem. I was working with LGBT and racialized communities and we were still, just handing out condoms and pamphlets and you know people really want to know the stuff that we missed out in high school so none of us had uh, education in high school that was around sexuality that taught us communication that taught us how to speak about our desires that told us how to say no and respect other people's no and how to talk about fantasies that we think are weird and so we just we get kind of reproductive sex ed in school and um, then I started teaching workshops at a, a local shop at good for her and that kind of came out of my own dysfunctional experiences. <laughs> so I really had um, a tough time, <laughs> kind of, I was married for 10 years monogamously, didn't have good sexual communication, didn't have good relational kind of regulation. And um, so my year out of my marriage was a year of fuckery. And so that year of fuckery, I was like, maybe I'm queer, maybe I'm kinky. Turns out I'm all these things. And then I thought, you know, <laughs> other people also have these challenges. And so I started creating courses where people could come in and be their authentic selves. And I basically teach people how to own it and, and how do we get rid of all this self-judgment. Oh my gosh, girl, preach. Yes, I'm sure all of the girls that are listening and men who are listening can very much relate to that. That's so incredibly um that's an amazing story that you shared me. Thank you so much. That's such a great perspective. I find that I hear similar stories, like, like even myself, like why does it take us after getting engaged or after getting married and being in like such long relationships of bad sex for us to really just own it. Right. And that's because we're, we go through so much of like shame or just like really social pressure to be in these relationships or, you know, be in these things because it's what we're supposed to do, you know? quote unquote. But, you know, as, you know, humans grow, it's just, it's just not enough for us. When are you going to hit your enough? Right. And that's really beautiful that you owned it and you, you saw this whole new pleasure side of you, which I think is so beautiful. And I can totally relate to as soon as I ended my last engagement, I, you know, um, explored with many women and different um, kinks as well. And it was so empowering, incredibly empowering to the point where now I feel like I can communicate anything <laughs> to anybody. So I can definitely relate to that. And I hope that the, our listeners can are really happy that, you know, we're, we're proof of concept and we're, we're doing the deed. Um, I have a question. So, you know, when you left that 10 year marriage, how was it like, um, how was it like the first beginning explorations part of that side of things? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. And I, I do pleasure coaching one 
one-on-one -on -one with people. And I find that a lot of us have the same kind of aftermath experience. We <laughs> existed in relationships where maybe we didn't have enough desire. We didn't have enough authenticity around our desires and communication. And so we're starving. And so I did what a lot of people do, which is I jumped into another high desire, high, you know, like someone who devours you with their desire. Mm -hmm. And so while that's very exciting, without knowing what I actually wanted and needed and being willing to set boundaries around that, um, it became not so good. It was actually stealing from me when I thought it was feeding me. Totally. And so that was a big kind of realization around healing. And, and I think it's, you know, it's an experience. We all have these experiences. And so I realized there were parts of me that didn't know how to maintain boundaries and that would easily betray what I needed, you know, in the moment, either for emotional bartering with somebody and trying to get like those feelings in order for we're trading sex, you know, mm -hmm. um, and also to not really understand how to move slowly into things that I didn't know. And so BDSM and kink was like one of those things. I just thought, oh, this is cool. This person likes this. They'll show me. But it's, it's really important that people realize that uh, folks that you're dating, when they talk about, oh, I've got 10 years of experience in kink or BDSM, that doesn't always translate to skill. And right. so experience could be, yeah, you've had tons of partners, but like, do you know how to do these things in a way that keeps both of us emotionally and physically safe? Mm -hmm. Yes. Priorities. We all have different ones and it's really important to be very clear on them. And it definitely helps mitigate those awkward tensions coming up in the future. Most definitely. So today's topic, we're going to be talking a lot about kink and race. I think this is an incredibly important time to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement as myself, being the founder of Pleasure Peaks, being a woman of color in the cannabis space in an industry that was never really made for people like me. I think it's really important to know and that our community knows that we're still very much here for you and we're still very much need healing and that's myself included. And I'm so happy to be talking about this conversation because guys, oh my God, <laughs> there's so much to it. There's so much and it's, and it's fun and it's hard, but I can't wait to talk about it all. So let's just dive right into it. So as a sex educator, what are your thoughts on creating a more inclusive and safe space for bi, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color? Yeah, um, I think it's really important that we understand that uh, racism doesn't just happen at this interpersonal level. It's not just kind of saying like, oh, no black people can come to our kinky party. It really happens at these structural, cultural, and interpersonal levels. And so in kink spaces, structural could definitely be things around, you know, what kinds of um, spaces are we creating? Who's like shown as leaders or as sexy in these spaces? Spaces. You know, it's a lot of like white dominant, you know, cisgendered men who are running a lot of these spaces and they don't represent everybody's interests. And so they're willing to look at leadership in that way. And then culturally, you know, what kinds of things are we doing and how are we doing them? And so there's been lots of talk around like race play, um, you know, and, and that's only one form of, of an experience where someone who's a person of color could experience harm. Um, but some people of color are into race play. And so how do we, you know, make 
manage to give people the skills and the knowledge and the wisdom about what are the actual risks when you're undertaking this? Like, it's not just fantasy for some of us. It comes with more, um, you know, trauma. And so we can use these things sometimes to heal things, but also that has to be really clear. And often people of color in kink spaces get fetishized. And so you're going to be, you know, um, a black woman in these spaces and you're going to be seen in a certain way to serve somebody else's fantasy. And so you get objectified without your consent. Um, and then interpersonal, yeah, there's so much nonsense around, you know, who's considered attractive. Like if we look at any type of kink, uh, fetish festival or you know whatever it's always thin white submissive young women right and so those aren't the only people that are engaging in kink but it gives a sense of us not belonging if we don't belong in those bodies and so we don't get to see representation and representation matters so incredibly much I think that I don't think that society really acknowledges how much representation matters unless you have been a person of color and you've seen life that way your whole, um, your whole life. And I can definitely speak from that as a person of color who is, just as a little bit of background and context, I am Peruvian, Jamaican, and Irish. I am a Canadian melting pot, as they say. <laughs> and um, so my father is Jamaican and, I'm, uh, and Jamaican and Irish, and my mother is Peruvian. And what I find is that since I didn't have a very close connection with my father, with um, a black person in my life and his surrounding family as well, I didn't have that relationship. So when I was you know, going through school and, and going to work and watching TV, seeing on the media, that representation of people of color, I did not have. And the only representations I have are very negative because of the media, unfortunately, as being a young person growing up. So if I was, and when I was young, seeing, you know, only negative pictures of black people being seen as thugs or violent or woman being, you know, the loud black woman, quote unquote, I find that it really painted this picture that I couldn't feel safe near them. And that subconsciously is definitely something I grew up with. I have spent years trying to pull myself out of that simply because I know it's just ingrained. And I know that's because of just visually what I've seen. It's not what I feel personally, but that still is going to affect me regardless. And that goes into trauma and the different ways that we view trauma, which is a whole nother different and very complex thing, but it very much exists. And um, that's why it's so incredibly important that we have that representation. I hate it when, um, and I don't even like to use the word hate, but I really just like when people say that like the diversity hires are so um, ineffective or not necessary or not important and they're taking all of our jobs. And I think that the worst part is that diversity hires or having a diverse board or diverse program, company, anything has always been um, way more effective and way more successful. Um, so I find that these things are, you know, can be so helpful in moving forward society that we should be looking at them as solutions rather than continuing to look at the negative and and what has been done but how we can move past it so thank you so much for that um and i was wondering so you mentioned race play i want to know a little bit more about that can you speak a little bit more on that 
Yeah, for sure. So um, race play is where um, people decide to eroticize either race or racism. So, um, and you might be like, oh, you know, listening and being like, why would the, anyone get turned on by that? Well, the, the reality is that a lot of our fantasies don't have a pathology. They don't have a, you smelled your mom pantyhose while you were five, and then all of a sudden you're a pantyhose fetishist. Not everyone works that way. Sometimes we just get off on things that are taboo. We get off on being able to experience things that are actually un safe to experience outside of a container for our eroticism. So a planned scene that has a beginning and an end. Um, and for other people, you know, engaging in this type of taboo play, it can be healing. So I didn't have control over the racism that I experienced at the grocery store, but now I have an, a, an opportunity to recreate that experience where I actually have control over how it goes, when it stops, when it ends. And so race play for some people can take the form of um, power. And so it could be about either adoring or humiliating, um, you know, two sides of the same coin. It's about like drawing attention to something, uh, someone else who, uh, where there's a, a racial dynamic. So it could happen between white people and people of color. It could also happen between different races for people of color. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, people are engaging in race play and they're not even really calling it race play. So if I fetishized you as a woman of color, you know, without you being interested in that, and I might comment on, oh, I love the tone of your skin and I love this. For some people, that is a, a really subtle form of, of race play. And so they're, they're, they're kind of dissecting you into the parts that they want to feed their fantasy. And then the other parts of you are, you know, kind of whatever, whatever you want. Um, and so I think a lot of people, get really confused around um, you know that if you have a fantasy it doesn't necessarily mean that the other person who looks like they fit in your fantasy are going to be into your fantasy. And right. um, race play can also go the other way. I mean I, I engaged in race play um, as a femdom with white males because I love the idea that I don't have power over white males in day-to-day society. I'm afraid of white males most of the time. And we have this sort of like idea that, um, you know, if someone cat calls you, you can't do anything, right? Like we've all been edited. We've learned to self-tame our responses to certain people. And so for me to have a white male that wants to be submissive and wants me to get him to apologize for his whiteness, for patriarchy, for all these things in a power dynamic where we're both consenting. And so I'm treating him the way that he wants to be treated and he's treating me with the adoration that I want to be treated with. That's so interesting. I am absolutely loving this. I never thought of it in that way. And I'm honestly a little intrigued. (laughs) 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 Will I be trying this later? Possibly. We can take him. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's so interesting because I, um, I love sexual exploration and I am a very adamant person on, you know, there's the sky is really the limit. It's really as far as your imagination goes, but consent and safety is absolutely key. And thank you for really painting the picture of what that can look for us as well as playing, um, playing with races in the bedroom. That's so interesting. Another question I have for you, because you are a body of knowledge, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, What are your thoughts on fetishes, on race fetishes? Yeah, yeah, this is a good one. Um, I think with um, with any type of, of fetish play or any type of um, kinky play, the idea that you are turned on by something and then you have decided to take it from your fantasy into reality, it that's two different kind of 
football games, right? Like we've got one where we're not involving the potential harm of other people and the other one where we might be exposing people to kinks that they don't have. And so if you have a, a race fetish and it, a fetish is different than a preference. So a fetish is, um, usually fetishes are described in the way that we've understood the word fetish from like religion. And so it's, it's kind of getting super aroused and eroticizing something that is inherently non-sexual. So feet are non-sexual, <laughs> pantyhose are non-sexual, gotcha. you know, uh, race is non-sexual. And so we're, we're taking something into a specific way. And usually people are really, really attached to the desire around this. Then there's folks who say, well, I have racial preferences. I just don't like certain types of people. Um, and this came up in our race and kink discussion where it's, it's actually not okay. And, and so we see a lot of times on uh, dating apps where people are like, you know, no fats, no femmes, no blacks, no whatever. And they're kind of calling out. And it's usually um, really disturbing for people of color because we don't have the same kind of influence over what is considered attractive. I mean, the media, our porn, you know, every single thing is really celebrating a white-centric, a European-centric form of beauty. All of our beauty products, there's all these industries designed around it, whereas if you were and I were to say, well, you know what, we're actually not going to date white people, we're going to focus on people of color, that's a different dynamic because we don't have the kind of social power that white people do to sort of um, cancel, you know, attractiveness for, for a lot of people. Um, so it's okay if you're a person of color and you kind of feel like I, I want, I feel safer and I feel like I'm going to have better experiences with um, other folks of color. And if you're someone who's really like, yeah, but I'm just really attracted to Asian women or I'm really attracted to this, all of our attraction has been socialized, all of it. And so every time you wonder why you're only swiping on this type of person, it's because we've been shown that these standards of beauty are the types of people that subconsciously we're supposed to celebrate and be attracted to. And um, so it's, it's really tough. You kind of have to dig into, is this a racial preference or is this a, a fetish? And if it's a preference and you don't want to have it anymore, or try digging into and unpacking what that looks like and whether you are you know missing out on some great people because you've hypersexualized a particular race right and um, if it is a fetish and uh, likewise with um, something like race play if you have a fetish or a fantasy and you're uncomfortable with it and you don't want to have that fetish or fantasy anymore then you can work towards you know taming that and there's you know therapy there's like lots of different things that can help you um, you know kind of remove desire from it or reduce desire. But if you feel ashamed over your fetish or fantasy, that's different. So do you want to remove the shame or do you want to remove the fetish? Wow. That's so beautiful. I'm just like, wow, every time. <laughs> but, but really, yeah. it is a lot. And I feel like I, I can just so relate to that because like you said, subconsciously, we can continuously swipe right on people that, you know, or whatever are, are either our sexual fetishes or preferences. And I was, I was just speaking to a friend about this, that I was constantly swiping through Bumble and I swear to God, my whole Bumble list looks identical. They, like, they all are the exact same person. And when I realized that I was just like, Oh, that's really interesting. But the dates weren't like what I was wanting. But then when I went to go on, not dates, but social experiences, the guys that I would find and like have like a cool connection with never looked like the guys that were on my Bumble. So I was just like, is this like really helping me, this type of preference or 
or, or fetishes? Like, are, is this like really what I want? And it made me really question what kind of partner I was looking. And even going back to what I was saying before, like representation matters so much for people of color to see in a positive light. And like, like now let's talk about how about in like a love life or in like a sexual partner life, right? So in that aspect, since the whole Black Lives Matter movement kind of, you know, has up, uprooted so much tension, I've actually been, you know, questioning myself because I've constantly been dating um, white people, Caucasians. And, and I was just like, I really want to just be with a black guy right now. <laughs> I just really want to be with someone who I can relate to during these times that are what happening. And I also like want to give myself that opportunity to share with someone that has a very similar upbringing. And um, it has been really interesting. I, I tried that, didn't go as well as I wish it could have. <laughs> I think that, you know, going back to fetishes, black men, I have so many different options. You know, I feel like black men, they have absolutely like everyone at their feet. If you go to these Black Lives Matter movement um, rallies, there's a ton of women holding black dildos just out there fighting for black men, uh, which is amazing, but um, it's, it's very interesting, right? So I find that black men have been hyper-sexualized or, or hyper-fetishized for sure. And uh, could we talk deeper about that? What are your thoughts on that? Because to be honest, the majority of the people who are holding those black dildos that I've seen have been white people. Oh, I love that you brought that up. I hate those pictures. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it's so problematic and and it, it really objectifies black men to serve mm -hmm. the fantasies that a lot of them have been informed and socialized through colonization through slavery through this idea of breeding and like you know like like studs and so really horrible collective violence in our histories as people of color have informed some of these fetishes and so if you're going to engage in like oh i like bbc or i like black studs or i like whatever you have to make sure that this person is this person this human being who's bigger than how you're fetishizing them is even interested in connecting with you at that level it has to be their fantasy too they have to want to eroticize their own body in the same way that you're stereotyping them and the reason why it hurts us is because um if we're only categorized into these you know areas where we serve fantasies that are actually used against us like we can't flatten the power just because it's a fantasy like there's still a fantasy in those white women at protests holding black dildo like are you like it's you know just be here and be an ally <laughs> like we don't need you to like wave around black dildos um and you can you can kind of see how it actually steals a lot of the empowerment that we're talking about today and it steals our own definitions of our sexuality and it doesn't allow us to go into um what you also touched on with this internalized racism and how we've internalized a lot of ideas of white beauty and white desire and so maybe we think this is the only way that we can like connect and get the kind of social power that we're missing most definitely I can definitely feel that way it's been hard being a um you know a little brown girl growing up in Canada and it's it's really I've think that I've had a really hard time growing up here you know being called so many racial slurs in high school and you know and then after high school getting your first jobs and then told, getting told that like your hair isn't professional anywhere and it's just like I'm sorry I grew in my head like every other girl, <laughs> you know, and just being told all of these things, there's, it's so easy to internalize racism. And I think that that's not, 
Uh, I feel like so many people of color like myself feel so, so much shame for that, but we need to continue to create more safe spaces for them because it's just systemic at the end of the day. And it comes from so many different angles and viewpoints in every, every direction that, you know, we need as much support as we can get. Um, it's so beautiful. But I think what I like to see is that my sister, who has an awkward age gap from myself, she is eight years in difference. So she's just going to university now. And she grew up in a completely different generation. You know, when, when um, Barack Obama was like the president of the United States and seeing Michelle Obama putting Black Girl Magic out every day. So, and, you know, seeing a lot of more opportunities for people of color in her into her generation um, that we really put down and put the roots for. So I'm happy that we're seeing that change and hopefully collectively we can and hopefully our allies can, you know, put those dildos down and just sit with us, sit with us, speak with us. But, you know, what's even more important than speaking is listening right now. And um, I think that this uh, conversation has been incredibly eye-opening, not only for myself, but a lot of the other um people following as well. So um, I have another question. In terms of racism and um, in the bedroom, what are your thoughts on um, interracial couples today? Because I'm sure they must be getting a bunch of different types of reactions right now. Yeah, um, it's funny, our, our kink and um, our race and kink discussion series that we've been having, uh, we get a lot of interracial couples coming and they, they want to know how to keep each other safe. And exactly like you said, like how to hold space, how to really listen, um, how to be mindful. And um, I think it's, it's a wonderful time to be able to practice these types of skills in relationships and emotional regulation that benefit you at any stressful time and any time you want to have more empathy for your partner. And um, specifically with, with folks who are interested in doing kinky things that could be, uh, that, that you could have some sort of issues as a, um, an interracial couple. And so you might not be interested in race play, but maybe you're still playing with like Dom and Sub and those characters happen to be assigned to the people who have those, you know, social powers. So the white guy maybe is the Dom and the woman of color is the Sub. And so um, sometimes we we have folks that are really interested in, in that kind of eroticization, but they want to remove the potential for race play that might inherently come up. So what we'd recommend is like having these conversations and saying, you know, are there certain positions? Are there certain words? Are there certain names you might want to call me that are going to trigger me in this position that are going to make me feel safe, unsexy, and not connected to you. And so for example, with things like rope, um, you might want to learn rope ties that don't mimic any of the ties that might be associated with things like slavery or violence. You might decide if you're going to do spanking, you might do barehanded spanking instead of like using like a whip. So it just depends on, on the person and what their fantasy actually looks like removed of anything that would make them feel unsafe. And so for interracial partners, it's so important to um, really understand that if you are uncomfortable with your partner of color, you know, having these ranges of, of trauma come out of us. I mean, this is the first time in a long time that we're seeing a civil rights movement that actually allows us to talk about things the way they are, right? We didn't know, I mean, we had Rodney King in like 1995. So we, we know that this stuff was like happening, right? And um, it is really important for white partners to be able to sit with discomfort and to go into that discomfort 
discomfort. And really that's where the transformation happens is sitting with that discomfort and not necessarily jumping to, well, what about, and what if, and, and I heard, and it's like, no, this is your partner's experience and it is uncomfortable for both of you. So we need that resilience to step up in the relationship. Most definitely. And you know, if you're uncomfortable, just smoke more weed. <laughs> we haven't talked much weed on the show. We've been so into it. But as we say a lot of the time, like, you know, smoking a nice joint before having these conversations can really just like allow us to say things without that personal judgment or shame, you know, holding us back. So we'll really just give into our pleasures a little bit more. If we smoke a nice joint before the conversation, it definitely helps. Um, but Thank you so much for uh, mentioning that about interracial couples. I think that it's so incredibly important to have those conversations. Like even like you mentioned, as simple as rope, just not having it be, you know, the ties and the knots, not, you know, connecting to slavery or violence, like having a bow tie, just, just seeing the images in my brain as you're thinking of it has changed my body completely. So I can't Mm -hmm. imagine what it would do for me in the bedroom, which I'm definitely going to have to play with now, guys. So I'll let you guys know. This has been an awesome episode. We're going to have to do something again with you a thousand percent. She is having an amazing kink and race series. If you are really interested in this, please check her out. She is Luna Matatas and her information will be at the bottom of this episode. Um, another thing I want to talk about in about interracial relationships is the Black Lives Matter movement. So I've been mentioning, I've been dating, <laughs> and I see a lot of um, male Caucasian partners. And what I've been finding is that I've been getting such drastic um, different feedback and conversations from all of them. And I just want to say, like, how can we really get the most out of this? Because I feel that we're clearly not getting to it. <laughs> some people are thinking that, you know, it doesn't exist. They don't want to talk to it. I have some partners that were very adamant and eager to come to my rescue and be my support and anything I need. I was really happy about that. And then I had some people that were like, yes, Black Lives Matter, but like, you know, F those other people. And I was just like, whoa, like this is so much to handle right now. I cannot do this. So it really, interracial dating has been so interesting. I also went on another date with another Caucasian guy and turned out he ended up being a Trump supporter like halfway through. And I was like, how is this? possible like I'm so confused right now like do you see me (laughs) but anyways like I would love to talk about interracial dating a little bit more and then we'll get into some cannabis goodies yeah for sure that's so awful I'm sorry that you had that experience that's like my worst nightmare (laughs) Um, he was so cool too he was like a comedian he was fun guy he's young and I was just like I was was just so thrown off I was like wow Oh, this is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think especially online, it's really, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of put out there. Like my whole profile is, you know, pro-sex worker rights, pro-trans rights, pro-BLM, you know, pro-Indigenous rights. And so it's very clear, you know, what, what I'm looking for. Um, and for some people, they, they have those considerations if they're looking to emotionally invest in someone. And for other people, it's like, I don't even want to have a one-night stand with a, a Trump supporter. Yeah. And, um, and part of that <laughs> is because um, we don't necessarily talk about racism as the trauma that it is. When we talk about trauma, we think about physical trauma, we think about, you know, assault, 
but racism is also trauma and it's also held in our body and it gets trapped in our body. So I want to be able to feel safe with someone. And so if you're anti-BLM, you're, you're, you know, you're on, you're on the wrong side of where I'm going to feel safe. And, um, for other people, they don't care. They're kind of like, nope, I'm here. I want to hook up. I like the way they look. And I like, and that's okay. I think if you're aware going into it that it doesn't matter and that it's not mm-hmm. going to affect you, that's okay. Um, I had a, a one night stand once where someone, I didn't ask these questions. And um, I don't know, for some reason, and maybe he like Googled me or something. And when I went over the, the second time, he started asking me about my politics and like debating conservatism and like just for like an hour. And I kept kind of being like, so are we going to do it? Are, is this going to happen? What are we going to, and like would not let go of the conversation. Totally. So I was like, how did, what, That's how did this like happen? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, it actually made me really afraid because I thought, wow, this person is, you know, taking power that I didn't even know was up for grabs. Right. And just creating a really uncomfortable environment. So using your profile as a way to kind of speak to your values in the same way that you say, Hey, I like wine and yoga. You can also put on there that you're interested in, in BLM because you're more likely to connect with people that are like-minded, even if they're, you know, not completely um, skilled in being an ally, but at least they're not, you know, Trump supporters. And at least they're not sort of anti your existence, your right to exist in a safe world. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Most definitely. That's such an interesting, yeah. What an interesting brain (laughs) to get into. But I have to ask you, what is your favorite strains to smoke in the bedroom? <laughs> oh my goodness. So I am um, like a hundred percent like a sativa person and I have to, or else I will pass out immediately. And so I really, right now I'm really enjoying mango, which is a hybrid. Oh, so good. Oh, oh my gosh. It's so lovely. <laughs> great or I'm not having sex with anyone right now. So it's amazing for masturbation because it just like gives out this creative, like um, it also helps me focus. I'm really, it's very easy for me and many people to get stuck in their head in the middle of sex and you're having a great time and you're pushing all the right physical spots, but your brain is taking to you to, is the laundry done? Am I fat? Am I this? You know, like, and we get sort of lost in that and it steals from our erotic energy. Um, so I definitely like that. I'm a big fan of edibles too and and so I make my yeah. own oils and my own butters and um and so then I have to taste test on myself which means sometimes I lose four hours but whatever <laughs> yeah they're hard to dose at home but they're fun right that's what makes it fun <laughs> totally, totally totally and making the oils also gives me the opportunity to test the oils as lube and so if you're using oil-based lube obviously you can't use condoms because um, it breaks down the latex but for me it gives my um, genitals and especially my clitoris just this kind of like increase in uh, receptivity to sensation and so my same old vibrator that I go to is suddenly a hundred times better for me because of that tingle kind of sensation a thousand percent I can vouch for that as well I love it I love it topically and I love smoking it mango is such a juicy strain too it's such like it's just so flavorful right it's just it's it's aromatically it's very sexy so I can I can see that (laughs) so I love that your favorite way to consume is edibles fun Um, any last tips for our listeners before we wrap up we talked about a lot of stuff I'm going to tell you guys right now this is not the last time you're going to see Luna Matatas at Pleasure Peaks we have to have her back guys Um, but we are going over our hours so I was just wondering 
what are some last tips that our listeners must know before they go? Yeah, yeah. And I am totally coming back. I, I've had such a great conversation with you um, and I adore everything that you're doing. And I think it's, it's so important that when we start exploring our sexuality, that we remember to be slow, intentional, and gentle with ourselves because there's a lot of nonsense in our head and voices and judgment in our head that is not actually ours. So any shame that anyone who's listening learned, if you learn shame about your body, about your sexual performance, about you know, how you smell or taste. The, all of this is stuff that we've been told. And it's industry that's told us to serve a purpose of us not feeling enough so that we can buy things. And so, you know, it takes time to unlearn all of that. But the good news is, is that you can unlearn it. And um, that will lead you to greater sexual confidence. That sexual confidence is not locked up in the perfect body or the perfect penis or whatever. It's locked up in you feeling that you are letting go of self-judgment so that you can belong in your erotic experiences. I love that. I feel that. I think that like my mom was such an amazing woman and such an amazing mother, but growing up, she like never gave a fuck about what anybody thought. You know, she was just like, I don't give a fuck. What do you think? You know, she would always say that to everybody. Anytime someone had an argument with her, she would always say those exact words. And I feel like I've been that person that is just like, I don't, I don't care. That shame is very much fallen off majority and I feel like that's why I'm so sexually um powerful and abundant and and very much feel very comfortable in that space although race is still something that I still very much struggle with and I still very much live with every day so thank you so much for this amazing I don't know therapy class (laughs) but um I'm so happy that you were here and uh we'll have to talk more this was the shame kink and race uh, pleasure talks episode thank you guys so much for joining we are also having a 30-day pleasure challenge we want to help all of you get more closer with your genitals physically mentally and spiritually with of course ganja cannabis is going to come with it as well please subscribe to our email list if you want to be the first to know about it and uh, thank you guys so much for another dope episode see you at the next one Ciao. <laughs> bye